This is the Post America Podcast. That's right, motherfucker. What the fuck you know about podcasting? This is our shit. Post America. Macho Black, Richie Crutch, Chrissy the Baboon. Post America Podcast, son. Download that shit, motherfucker. What's up, everybody? This is Richie from the Post America Podcast. We're back, and uh, today I got a, a special guy on here. I got Howie Abrams. How you doing, Howie? I'm doing well, Richie. Thanks for having me. No, thanks for doing this. Like I was just telling you earlier, uh, this is a name since I was a young young collector, finding all the, my favorite music. I I see your name so much in in the in the notes and and stuff like that. And and when I'd be reading magazines, I'd hear the name. So it's like you're like a key figure for all the some of the you know the the best bands that you know of my lifetime uh you know you're you were involved one way or the other and then you ended up writing books and doing all types of stuff so for the people that don't know you uh, what would what what would be your position you you worked at a few different record labels was it all like the same title or were there different titles at different different labels and, and which labels yeah i mean they were kind of like the same title but you know like as far as i had the same duties at all these places really but you know maybe there were a couple of different titles but you know the first thing i did is i started out as a salesperson for what was called important records um at the time which was the biggest indie record distributor in the country and housed within that company was combat records and relativity records and you know long story short after being a salesman there for a minute um i helped launch in effect records uh in the building there in hollis in a warehouse in hollis queens and so we did in effect records and i guess i was sort of technically like a label manager but i was an anr guy <laughs> pardon me um and our guy did marketing, you know, did a bunch of stuff. And then I went on and did A&R and I did product management for Roadrunner Records. And then I left there and I did A&R for records and publishing at Zamba Music, which was also Jive Records. And then for a little while, I moved over to the Warner Music Group, um, which I fucking hated. That was my worst job ever in the music business and that was where the sort of record world and all that stuff ended for me mm, so a bad experience there yeah i mean it was the first like publicly held company that i ever worked for it was like the first proper major label mm -hmm. and you go in there and you know i'm used to working even jive like which was huge but it felt like a big indie label you know it was like full of music lovers and everybody was going in the same direction and it was great. But then you get to like a Warner and, you know, stocks are involved and, and, and shareholders and everybody's trying to please those people. And it just feels like the music and helping the artists and all that stuff is so far in the rearview mirror that it's just awful, you know? Mm. So I was there for a couple of years and, you know, it was kind of around the time like that the big music business stuff was crumbling anyway. So maybe it just kind of worked out for the best. Wow, that's wild. You know, before we get to that, all that part, like how how old were you with the first your first record label job? So I started at 
important when I was 18. Wow. So, so I was doing, in effect, I was 19 years old when we started. So when did you get into, like, when did you realize that you just love music and you got to be around it at all times? Like, what was the, 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 the life like at home? And, and are you from Queens? Is that correct? Yeah. Originally from Queens. And yeah. Let's hear a little backstory. Let's, let's hear how you got yeah, into it. So, yeah. So, you know, Queens kid, you know, relatively boring place where I was, um, definitely no sign of this music and this scene that we know and love really, you know, I eventually went to high school with a couple of people who were into it. So, and my friends got, you know, more into it as well, but like Mike bullshit, you know, went to my high school, um, you know, Javier from born against and nausea and all that stuff went to my high school, a few other people who got into it. It was more like there was a lot of Ramones fans, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. that was sort of as punk as it got. Um, for the most part. And then, you know, from a really, really young age, like from the time I was like seven, uh, I just really was into music and my parents like played music in the house, but it was like big band kind of stuff and, you know, jazz. So it wasn't really, they weren't big music lovers, but it was on in my house. Um, uh, but I was into wrestling and from wrestling, I would go, to like the the candy shops and like try to buy magazines like wrestling magazines and one day i'm looking for a wrestling magazine and there's an issue of cream like right near my favorite wrestling magazine and kisses on the cover and i'm like what the fuck is that this is probably 1975 so i'm seven and i'm just fascinated by kiss you know just by the image and the whole thing and <laughs> You know, and I just got sucked into that, you know, and then I realized that this Kiss thing has albums out, you know, and I got Kiss Alive. Uh, my parents bought me Kiss Alive at, uh, at um, what's that the mall in Brooklyn, Kings, uh, Kings Plaza. And so, you know, my grandparents lived there. So we would go to Brooklyn a lot. And uh, my parents bought me Kiss Alive. And I was just, you know everything you hear about, like the staring at the cover, reading every credit, looking at the photos. They had those notes in the gatefold where you swore they just wrote them to you, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. It was like that crazy kiss experience. And then, you know, from the magazines, you discovered other bands because then you hear about like Aerosmith and even like Parliament Funkadelic because they were on the same label as Kiss and they had the crazy stage show. So they'd be in these magazines too. And, you know, then you'd hear about Cheap Trick or, you know, something like that. And, you know, as time went on, you actually started to, to hear a little bit about punk. But that just wasn't really my thing at that time. I was just, I was too young to really get that, you know. Mm -hmm. But Kiss was like, Kiss was the be all end all for quite a while. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like a lot of... uh a lot of people mentioned kiss. It was like, so I, I don't know. It must've just caught the eye. There was nothing else like it at the time. I well, suppose Well, it, it caught everything, you know, cause especially at that time, like, you know, not that kiss didn't rip other people off because they ripped off Alice Cooper. They ripped off like the New York dolls, you know? So it's, it's something where for, for a seven-year-old, you were really kind of seeing this all for the first time, you yeah. know, the theatrics and the breathing fire and the blood, but then, you know, they were just kind of a raw, powerful rock band, you know, and Kiss Alive is still to this day for me, their best album, because 
it was like a greatest hits of their first few years because the first few studio albums are super tame, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, they're like very meticulously produced and they just don't sound particularly great. And the songs don't breathe that well, but they were on the road and people were getting into their show. So then when they finally put out a live, you're like, that's what I remember from their show, even though I certainly hadn't seen them yet. But you could tell just the energy level of that was so different and so much better. And just there was something for everybody. They were like a comic book with a soundtrack. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And uh, yeah, like you mentioned, that live album, that's a, that seems for the fans of Kiss, that seems to be the go-to album. Well, it's crazy because that album was only meant to be like a filler between studio albums. Like that Mm -hmm. wasn't really meant to be very much. And the label Casablanca records was in so much fucking trouble from putting out kiss records because they sold okay, but not, you know, it wasn't in line with the amount of money that was being spent on that band, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they would do okay. So like, well, let's record a few shows and we'll put it as a live album and then we'll do the next album, which happened to have been destroyer, which took them into the stratosphere. But a live comes out and there's this incredible version of rock and roll all night on it, you know, and mm. that had been released already, you know, as a studio version, but it, it was only like kind of a B plus, you know, but when you heard it, the way they played it live, it was a fucking hit, you know? And so it got on the radio as a live song and like the album just took off and, and, you know, they recouped all the money they were, you know, like sort of in debt and, everything just changed for them. And then they go in and they make this super studio album with destroyer. And of course, Beth, the fucking ballad, <laughs> you know, which they didn't even want on the album and like fought to keep off the album becomes a massive hit, you know, and changes their entire life. Yeah. That's like the song, right? <laughs> yeah. And they didn't want it. You know, I read really, I didn't know Shout- that. Yeah. There's a book out called shout it out loud, which is the entire history of destroyer. Mm-hmm. And, they talk about it that, you know, of course they were trying to appease Peter Chris because they wanted him to be happy, but Gene and Paul didn't really let the other guys write very much, you know? So he comes in with this song, Beth, and they're like, it's great, but it's not kiss. Like we, you know, we're not putting this on a kiss album, you know, the label doesn't want it on the album. They don't want it on the album, but now they're like, fuck Peter's pissed off, you know? So what do we do? So they decide to make it a B side of I think it was maybe Detroit Rock City as a single. And the label told everybody, do not play this on the radio. Like, do not play it. What? Basically, basically bury it. Like, don't, don't fuck with this song, you know? Uh-huh. And so, so Detroit Rock City doesn't work that well, you know, for the radio. And there was like a station or two that just decided like, because these were pop stations and they were just like, we're going to play this song, Beth. I really like this song, you know? And so they play it and it goes to number one. So now you got a couple of stations where Beth's the number one song in the fucking market, you know? And then it starts to spread and it just becomes this massive hit that they couldn't hold back. And so they never wanted it. They didn't want it on the album. They certainly didn't want it to be a single. And then it's the one that took them from like, you know, a night at the garden to three nights at the garden, you know? Wow, I never knew that. Peter Chris must have been feeling real big in, on himself, right? Like, yeah, he had to be, right? Because he like he won. I told the war, you, suckers, you know? go exactly. Yeah. Like, like I win. 
Wow, that's pretty cool. And he gets to sing it every night solo, you know? Insane, man. That's that's cool. And this is, so this, you know, you're getting heavy into Kiss at seven years old. That's pretty young. Like, when when do you, and you're also, you're, you're a hip-hop guy. You love hip-hop as well. I loved it. I grew up, like, all the kids in my elementary school were, like, the younger brothers of, like, the Hollis crew, you know? That's, that's Run and, DMC's town, right? Totally. So my, so Hollis was basically like a town over from where I grew up in Queens Village. And so, you know, kids went to various elementary schools or middle schools or whatever. And so there were kids who I grew up with who even by like, you know, the end of elementary school were doing the like Adidas Superstars, Fat Laces, you know, Kangles and, and, and little kids, like little, little kids. And it was getting passed down to them from their like older brothers and sisters, you know? And this is like when Russell Simmons was throwing parties on Jamaica Avenue, which kind of connected all the towns in like the Jamaica area, you know? Yeah. And, you know, so you just got exposed to it probably before I ever heard any rap records. I saw the fashion and stuff, you know, and like people would do like the iron on playboy bunnies on their sweatshirts and like people were doing that. They had little <laughs> break, they had little breakdance crews, you know? And, you know, I didn't know shit about it, but like a couple of these kids were my friends and I would start to understand like what whatever they knew about it, you know, because they weren't the ones in the midst of it. It was like their older siblings, you know, mm-hmm. um, who were going to these parties and like, you know, like seeing some of these groups even play like Curtis Blow and shit like that. And so it was a little bit later that I, I caught on to it. Probably, you know, like there were a few radio stations in New York, for instance, and probably everywhere else, but not everywhere else, but big cities, um, who had that like two hour hip hop show, you know, on a, on like an urban radio station. And so it'd be like Friday night, midnight to two or whatever. And you made those home, you know, cassettes and you would just tape songs, you know, and it would be like slick Rick and it would be, you know, Dana Dane and like that era of stuff like before people were really putting out albums like they were mostly just singles for djs and you know you would tape them all and you know you would have like lottie dotty on a tape you know class i can't believe you mentioned dana dane you don't hear him get mentioned too much no but that was the era you know it was that 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 time when those were the names you know and and those were the people who like if they came out with a new song that was the shit you waited for and really you know, you taped it immediately. I have to have it, you know, and be the one in my neighborhood who has a tape of that. You remember that song, Cinderella? Of course. Wow, that was so cool. That was so same, cool. same era, you know? Yeah, I haven't thought about Dana Dan in so long now that you say it. Yeah, there was a lot of cool stuff that never uh, gets mentioned too much. You, you ever hear MC Shy D? No, I don't think I know that. Okay, that was kind of, kind of from that era as well, and I always okay. liked it, but I don't. I just don't hear too many people mention Schooly D. I used to love. Oh, like, Schooly D. I loved. I mean, and we loved him in yeah. New York too. And yeah, he and, still gets props know. though. People bring him up a lot. Oh, he's he's incredible. And and what's funny is because I loved Saturday Night and all that stuff. And then when I worked at Zamba, so we were his publisher, and Jive put out some of his records. Oh, that's so, so dope. So one day, like, and you know, people didn't know me there as someone who was a big hip-hop fan so what was funny is my boss comes in one day and he's like hey we're gonna have a a meeting this afternoon i want you to come to it's with schoolie d and i'm like what i was like i'm gonna fucking sit in on a meeting with schoolie d and they're like yeah and they're like because we know know you like that era like the older like real deal hip-hop stuff and i was like i fucking love it and i love him and so 
he when remember all the like english big beat shit like chemical brothers and like yeah, all that yeah. stuff was was popping so he was working with a lot of those artists because they were all sampling him and so he got like he became like he had like a resurgence like in england because of those artists yeah he had and those so, kind of beats too those big, big bass time. reverb hits yeah and, and even from so from his vocals to his beats Everyone in England who was doing that whole big beat thing loved Schoolie D and they were sampling his beats. They were sampling his voice. And then I forgot which artist it was. It was like a pretty big, you know, artist over there in the like dance world um, had him come and do like new vocals, you know, on a record. And this was like, you know, early 2000s, probably, you know, and so way after his you know supposed heyday. But he was making shitloads of money because like all these samples. And but I was just happy to like hang out with Schooly D, and he was such a cool guy. That's cool. Good for Schooly, baby. Yeah, he he made a little loot there for a minute. That's good. You know who I love back then too? Early uh, Cool Modi. Oh, uh, Cool Modi was great. Also, Jive. He had also yeah. He, he had a Jive. song called "The Best." Remember that song? He, that's right. The best. Well, like, he, what was, what he was had cool, that old I, school voice too, like a uh, Chuck D style, like baritone right, voice. Right, pre pre Chuck D. Like yeah, you yeah. know, it was like a very clean voice. But it had like this tone to it, you know? Yeah. You were like, I anytime it, it comes on, I know that's cool Modi. That's you know? cool Modi. Then he started beefing with LL and then kind of he faded uh, out. Yeah, well, LL killed him. Yeah, he did. He did. <laughs> but that's cool. So you're you're in the mix of it, but you know, let's go back because you know, I got off to, I got excited about the old hip hop. <laughs> so seven you're into KISS, but when do you yeah. get into like the, the hardcore stuff, the punk rock, the metal, all that, all that kind of stuff? When is that? Yeah, happen? well, I guess, you know, KISS is sort of a real gateway into metal, you know? So, you know, from KISS and the magazines and all that stuff, you know, you hear Black Sabbath mm. and, you know, things like that. And then a little bit later, Black Sabbath leads to Priest and Maiden, you know, and you're getting into that stuff. And then... It was interesting because, like, obviously, you know, 83 was a big year for the changing of the guard with metal, you know, um, because that's when, you know, Kill 'em All comes out. And that's when, you know, um, Slayer's first album comes out. And, you know, then you had bands like Exciter and the new wave of British heavy metal, obviously. I and mean, I love Saxon and like, you know, those types of bands, too. Um, and then you hear accept, you know, and, you know, what happens is it starts to become a thing about the fastest bands, you know, like that's where it was for me and my friends, right, where it became almost like this contest, because then you get into tape trading, right, and you start to realize that Metallica's speed comes from bands like Discharge, you know, mm -hmm. and it comes from England and it comes from, you know, punk and hardcore like that, that the thrash is way before metal ever got involved, you know. And so now you're like, oh, I want to hear these fast bands. And then so you get COC and you get DRI and then you go even deeper in this fast bands like like Siege from from boston and larm from from holland and it really is it's like a joke like it's it's all like who's the fastest you know before even you were caring about like which metal band was the fastest it was more you know 
and BRI for me were just the kings, even though I'm sure there's a band or two that may have even played faster than them, but you're kind of splitting hairs at that point, right? Yeah, that, um, that, they're definitely known for the speed. Yeah, so it's like that was kind of the thing, and it was about speed, 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 like not even heaviness, just speed. And so that was like the thing for a really long time, and I just became like obsessed with that stuff. And then, you know, uh, around the time guess it was like 84 85 a friend of mine that i went to school with and went to shows with and all this stuff like we started we did a fanzine and so the fanzine which was called occasional irregularity and it was basically like metal and hardcore you know it was the crossover Mm -hmm. and we did that for a while and that's how we met all the bands you know like basically through that and i was we were both actually roadieing for for nuclear assault which was another thing so between working with nuclear assault and being friends with John and Dan um, and the fanzine, I feel like we met everybody, you know what I mean? Like through reviewing their music, through interviewing them, you know, we tried to be, we were very sort of New York and East coast centric. Um, but, you know, we liked things from all over the world, but we had access, you know, through the matinees and, and all that stuff to meet all these bands, you know, it was like, Let's interview Vinny Stigma. Okay, well, he's fucking standing outside CB's right now between bands. So <laughs> let's, you know, so let's roll up on him and fucking, you know, do an interview. So we did stuff like that, you know, and we interviewed, you know, Leeway and NYC Mayhem before they became straight ahead. And, you know, so I knew Craig, for instance, through Danny Loker because Danny Loker was best friends with his brother, you know, and, and, and then became great friends with Craig and taught him how to play bass and, you know, it was like an incestuous little world. It really was. And like, you know, there was such a crew that knew everybody. That's how I met Pete and Lou, you know, through those guys and Tommy Carroll and Gordon Ansis and like everybody that was hanging out at that time that loved both metal and hardcore. Like you found each other, you know? How many issues uh, of that zine did you do? We only did three, okay. but we sold them for 50 cents. Wow. And- and we sold them at, at like, a, there was a couple of stores. So like Bleaker Bob's had it, some records had it, but most of them we would sell at shows. Like we would just walk the line, you know, at shows and sell them. Like while people were waiting online to go to CDs or Lamore or something. And, you know, we would sell hundreds of, of every issue. And it was amazing because it was so cheap. We were like guilting people into buying them because like, you know, 50 fucking cents, <laughs> you know, like. I know you buy- gotta buy that. Come on. Just buy it. That's why we would say support the scene a lot. Give a you dollar, know? say keep the change. At least you're cheap. Exactly. Pump. Like like buy one for your friend, give me a dollar, you know? Um, <clears throat> so we did that. And like, again, we just met so many people. And, you know, I remember, I don't remember what show it was at the Ritz. And we were selling them. And like um, Paris from the Chromags got a copy and we had reviewed the demo. Mm-hmm. and the issue and then he came and chased us down he was like nobody has ever reviewed this tape before you know really and, yeah and we were like really we're like i feel like everyone in new york has this thing you know he yeah. goes yeah but like no one wrote about it yet and i was like well we did kind of get it like right before we did the issue so it was fresh and we were like we gotta we gotta review this thing it's amazing so he was just like super thankful that like we reviewed it man i'd love to see that review Oh, I have them. I'll, I could post it. I have, uh, yeah. I think our, our quote was that it was a necessity of human existence. Wow. I think that was the, like the final line or the first line or something like that. Like I mean, we were just 
that's the biggest props crazy. you could give it. Yeah. What else I mean, right. It's like, it's like, it's like food and air and water, you know? <laughs> so how old are you when you're doing this, when you're selling the zines and making them, printing them up? Like, so I guess we were like probably juniors in high school around that time. Mm. Um, you know, so, so 16 or so, maybe 17. So, and cool. so then again, it's like, it just shows you like how, quickly like i kind of went into a quote-unquote real job in the business because it was only you know when i was like late in my 18th year or so that i was working as a distributor um and then you know i only worked there for about six months before we started in effect that's amazing and so at this age you're you're taking the, the subway or the bus or you're just getting your ass to manhattan somehow and you're oh hitting, yeah hitting up all those clubs how's how was that experience early on well, I mean, it started with record stores, right? So sort mm -hmm. of, you know, when I was like 15, 16, after school, like, you know, you were just, that's when you were buying like shitloads of records and magazines and fanzines and stuff. And so I had to take like a 40, 45 minute bus ride to a 40, 45 minute train ride. So it was like an hour and 15 to an hour and 30 to get into Manhattan to get like into the village where you get off at West 4th and you're near like Bleaker Bob's and you know, Washington Square Park. And, you know, so my routine was basically go to Washington Square Park, get a bag of weed, smoke some of it and go record shopping, you know. And there was a whole bunch of stores like in the same area, um, you know, within a few blocks. But Bleaker Bob's was really like the spot. Like that's yeah. where I bought. That's where I bought Victim and Pain. That's where, you know, I bought a lot of bands demos and, you know, all kinds of albums. So that was like the place. And, you know, the people that worked there knew their shit and you know a lot of cool people shop there so you would see like the cool looking hardcore dude who was older than you and you'd be like what did they buy you know mm. and like you know you'd, you'd ask the guy behind the counter like what did they buy i was like oh they bought you know a band called raw power from italy you know and i was like oh i gotta have that you know <laughs> and it's like you'd buy it too and you'd hope that they had two copies so that they had one left for you but you know so it started there and you would see flyers. So the record stores are the places where you'd see all the flyers for shows. And then there was the Village Voice, right? So the Village Voice was like the Bible. Like nobody even took the Village Voice with them. They would open it up, look at the back few pages. So you'd look at like the Ritz ad, the Irving Plaza ad. The, you'd look at the CB's ad. But when you left the matinee, you got the flyer for the, and you knew who the, was playing the following week already, you know? Mm. So you didn't need the voice to tell you that on Wednesday who was playing Sunday, you knew the Sunday before. So you knew for a whole week who was playing the next matinee. And then you would see, even, you know, you started to see Lamore flyers, you know, and even though that was Brooklyn and it was, you know, sort of far away. Um, but that scene was so small at the time, really, that, you know, you just, you let people know in your world, like what was going on. And so you'd see flyers for shows and, you know, even if there was something going on in Queens or whatever, um, there'd be a flyer for it. And that's when, you know, I, I'd gone to some like arena shows by that point and, and whatever. And, but I, I, you know, the first real like club show I probably went to was, um, was seeing Venom and Metallica in Staten Island on in uh in 83 and well, that was probably a mission for you from queens well it was funny because you know like one of our friends had an older brother that was kind of into the music also mm -hmm. so he wanted to see venom everybody wanted to see venom at that point they were like 
the biggest import in the whole country as far as records go. Like nobody sold more records on import than Venom uh, with black metal. It was just huge. And so he wanted to go. So we found out that one of the two shows was an all ages show. So he was willing to drive us. So like four or five of us, you know, got in the car from Queens and went to fucking Staten Island, middle of nowhere. Like, you know, I don't know if any of us had even ever been in Staten Island before. And, you know, we go to this place, the Paramount Theater, um, which, you know, had done some shows before, like the Dead Kennedys had played there and, you know, like big bands open, like SSD open for them and like all this stuff. And apparently that show was a huge riot. But then there was a lot of metal shows also before that, you know, Man of War played there and the Rods played there and like, you know, Virgin Steel, like those types of bands. And then, you know, Venom is going to do two nights there with this band Metallica which I'd heard of only because I had the metal massacre compilation for metal blade mm. and they were, they were on the first one, but like, you know, no, there were very few fans of Metallica at that point, especially on the East coast. Um, you know, very few people knew who they were. Um, and we went to that show and that was kind of, you know, that's the like changing of everything for you. Like seeing that experience and being in a room with that kind of energy and all these like people who like the same shit you do. And, you know, uh, that changed a lot for me, you know, and then the club going to clubs, you know, I started going to CBs the following year. Um, I went to a couple of hardcore shows before I even went to CBs, but 84 was, was the first time I went to a matinee. What year was that Venom Metallica show? So that was 83. That was April of 83. Wow. That's so they awesome. Did, it was uh, Venom's first time in America. And um, I don't even know if there was supposed to be a third band on the bill or not, but Metallica was the only opener. And, uh, you know, and it's funny because years later now you talk to people that, you know, like the same shit you do, you know, mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, yeah, we were there, you know, like Pete and Lou, like those guys, you know, like, which I know that they were into the same. They, we had the same record collection, basically, you know. Yeah, people loved Venom. I always remember that. And the logo, I see it every every time you mention a band, it's funny, like the logo goes right through my head. Big time. Like when, and it's yeah, like it's, it's and so they cool. were the most piss off your parents band there was. You know, like there was no no band that was the like ultimate rebellion, you know, and like make your fucking parents a little bit scared of what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, like they were the one. Because again, the logo, the imagery. But the music, too, it was all fucking Satan all the time. And, you know, and they were just it, it was crazy. You know, it had like that that kiss energy to it where it was very like theatrical and in your face and shit blowing up and, you know, all of that. And like so at that time, like people traveled from all over the place to see Venom at those shows. Yeah. You know, it, it's like uh, with Venom, it's funny, like the imagery and, you know, the Satanism, the logo. But like musically, it's like just like hard, like almost like biker rock kind of like. Well, it, it's funny because it, if you listen to the first album, right? Uh-huh. If you listen to Welcome to Hell, Welcome to Hell sounds like punk, you know, because yeah, like, yeah. it's super sloppy. It's super raw. You know, if you take the Satan out, it's like they sound like, you know, like a D-beat band. Right. And basically that's kind of what they are. And then black metal comes out and it's a little bit more. I don't know. You don't want to say the word mature when it comes to venom. Right. But yeah, it, it, you know, they had such a wide 
variety of fans like in the same way motorhead did right like if you saw motorhead really early it was bikers you know yeah definitely. like that's who go see them it was like these really fucking filthy you know biker types and like you know dirtbag types you know it was definitely not <laughs> you know it wasn't your average maiden fan you know it was definitely a different thing and then you know as they got bigger obviously the audience expanded but you know it's uh it, it was a very different thing. I mean, everybody I know who saw Kiss in the really early days, like 74, 75, they said that's what they drew, you know, mm. that, that, that it was a rock crowd, you know, it was like, those are the people who liked the hard rock bands, you know, so they may like Black Sabbath, but then, you know, they like Alice Cooper and they like Kiss and the, you know, and, and, and a handful of other bands, but that was like the thing then, you know, yeah. and even the people who weren't bikers, you know, they all had like, cut off denim jackets with like the Harley Davidson fucking patch on the back, you know, like, you know, venom, that might be thing. the number one patch for the denim, denim jacket, right? Like it's a big one, even on like a punk rockers vest, you, you see a, de- a venom patch. Well, that was it too. Like when you'd go to like punk shows and hardcore shows, you would see venom and motorhead stuff there all over the place, you know? And they definitely, you know, were the two, probably the two most prominent bands as far as the actual crossover goes, mm-hmm. because it was okay to like Motorhead, you know, and, and, and like, you know, AF, you know, it was basically, and then a year later, it, you know, it was cool to like Venom and like AF and like all the crust punks like that shit, you know? So the people that were into like discharge and nausea and like, you know, all and doom and those types of bands, they all liked fucking Motorhead and Venom. Yeah. Venom had that song harder than ever. I, I always liked that one. <laughs> yeah. It's just yeah. A, like a total rock song, you know? Yeah. Later on, they slowed down a little bit and they got yeah. very rock, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So how, what kind of impression did Metallica make on you that night? Cause that's, is that before or it's the same year as kill them all, but was yeah, it was kill them all out yet. Yeah. It was before they were basically on the East coast recording. Oh, so okay. they were playing shows cause, um, they were being managed by Johnny Z and so managed by him and they were going to be on Megaforce on his record label. So he had them basically living out here and they were recording Kill Em All, which I think they recorded like those months, basically, because Kirk is in the band now. Um, mm-hmm. So they didn't record until Kirk got here um, and they threw Dave out. So, you know, basically um, the, the one thing I remember about them is just how fast they were um, that I didn't know a ton. I didn't remember much of the material except for hit the lights because I'd heard it recorded already. Um, and they opened with it and that they were just super fast. Like I hadn't heard a metal band ever play that fast and they were faster than venom. They were faster. Everybody, they were caught up in that speed thing, you know, where like we have to be the fastest, heaviest. And then, you know, Slayer had to top them and, you know, then bands had a top Slayer and there was all that stuff going on. So what I remember most about them is that they were really cool and that they were fast. You know, I don't remember tons. It wasn't like, Oh, I didn't leave there going, Oh my God, Metallica is the next big thing. Like no Mm -hmm. one did. That's so cool, though, to, to see him at, at that point. Kill them all. What a record that was, you know? Uh, it just changed. Yeah. I mean, if that record so might have been ways. out before, before you saw him, it might have been a little different. But uh, yeah, I think, yeah, because you would have known the stuff. And then, yeah. you know, and then I saw them a few times because then I saw them after the album came out when they opened for Raven. There was that Kill Them All for One tour, which was basically Metallica's first 
like real U.S. tour where they played everywhere in the country mm -hmm. um, after the album was out. And I got to see them on that. And that was with the album out. So that was quite a bit different. And then I saw them. Yeah, that year. And then I saw them a couple of times the next year. There was that big show at Roseland in 84. It was August of 84. So it was Metallica raven and anthrax and so now you know raven's opening for metallica although raven closed that show but it was kind of a mistake the mm -hmm. roseland show um and anthrax that was their last show with um neil turbin singing and you know it was three thousand plus people for like this total underground metal shit you know like ride the lightning wasn't out yet you know and this bill drew 3200 people you know, in New York. And it was crazy. It was like one of those things where just like, you couldn't believe after the fact, like when you yeah. hear about it now that like you saw that, you know, and Metallica was amazing, but they were super drunk and sloppy, but they got signed to Electra based on that show. And Raven got signed to Atlantic based on that show. And then, uh, Anthrax gets signed to Island, but they fired their singer. So when they got signed, they didn't tell the label they fired the singer. Oh shit. So they got Joey Belladonna, you know, like luckily. Um, but they had fired Neil, like and, and got a record deal. And then Johnny C's like, what the fuck did you do? That's wild. So so the big labels by that point, they're watching. There's they're they, they just were starting to watch, you know. Um, you had a few AR people that kind of knew aggressive music and now have these jobs so like you know like a michael alago was at electra you know and mm -hmm. he was the one who saw and really lobbied for metallica and you know it, it, that that apparently i mean long story short from what i understand is that johnny z was trying to get him to sign raven and then he heard metallica you know and was like no i want metallica <laughs> You know, and then, mm. did you know, Electra did a deal with Johnny Z to like re-release Ride the Lightning and then put out their future albums. That's that's so cool. And Johnny Z, rest in peace, had a had a piece of all those albums. Yeah, just he's passed just recently, right? Yeah, in the last in the last year and his wife died recently. And, you know, they were they were it like they were not just Megaforce Records. They were crazed management and they were, you know, like starting with the flea market in New Jersey. I mean, they were just people who helped create the, this whole underground thing on the East coast and elsewhere. I mean, they put out just so many incredible albums. I mean, SOD Jesus. <laughs> you know? Yeah. See, that's another name I would always come across in my research, you know, that back then of some of my favorite albums, I'd see your name in there and then his name. And yeah, it, yeah, it was just like, uh, you know, they were, and they were meant to be a little, cute little side project you know yeah and they just fucking blew up and they made an incredible album that's uh that that's sick so you're seeing some big sh you know some historical shows you're, you're right in the mix with a, a lot of key bands and their first steps and yet so, i'm still jealous of people who came before me and saw shit that i didn't get to see you know and but, that's always the case though right i know i mean i feel lucky you know i definitely yeah. know i feel lucky i saw some incredible shit and still do but you know there was uh so what did you miss that, miss out on that you bummed that you miss out on what type I of mean, uh, bands? I mean, I just feel like I wish I discovered like New York hardcore a year or two earlier, you know, gotcha, okay. like, so like I never got to go to a seven and I never, you know, I never got to live, live that thing when it was tiny, you know? Uh -huh. Um, and 
I like so many bands from that, from that like 82, 83 period, but I didn't really get to see the hardcore bands. I saw the metal bands, but I didn't really get to see the hardcore bands yet. And so, I mean, it was fine. I was 14, 15 years old. And, you know, so there I were mean, a lot at the of same people. time, though, you're writing a zine, you're reviewing the uh, Cro-Mags demo. That's pretty, pretty early in the game of hardcore, the hardcore that I love anyway. I know there's like earlier stuff, but you know what I mean? That's, that's, yeah. A, like, I, you know, like, listen, I appreciate like, obviously the time that I was coming up and doing things, but you know, you're always like, well, we played it, you know, like I'm doing a book with Vinny Stigma now. Right. So it's like, you know, you sit there and talk and they'll tell me about a certain a seven show. And I'm just like, Jesus Christ, why couldn't I have been two years old? Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, how did I not get to see that? Um, just things like that, you know, but you know, then I talk to like kids who are, you know, younger and, and just into it recently or, you know, in the last 10 years or whatever. And they're in bands and, you know, I tell them shit and they're just like, oh, my God, like the things you've seen, you know, yeah, <laughs> so man. you got to like balance it. I get it, you know. And you're doing something with stigma, huh? That's going to be dope. Yeah. So we've been working on his book for a while now. And, um, you know, we're taking a break because they're overseas. And then uh, when he gets back, he's, you know, they're going to the West Coast with Sick of It All again. So, you know, but there's a lot to do. I mean, I've, I go, we had a standing like get together, like every Wednesday afternoon, I would go to his house and do an interview. And, you know, I've interviewed him at least a dozen times now. And, you know, for a couple of hours each time and just incredible information, incredible stories. Like, I love him even more now than I did before, you know, and I've known him forever. And just we're doing just some interesting shit with the book where, <laughs> pardon me, um, we're putting recipes in the book. We're doing a, uh, a comic strip Brilliant. in the book. Oh. Um, so like Ernie from, you know, Token Entry Black Train Jack is doing a, um, a like a, a stigma, like a stigma man, like superhero comic strip. <laughs> oh, nice. Where, where, you know, like stigma saves the kids, you know, and you know, all of the stuff that he like cooks at home and cooks on the road that it's almost like dorm room recipes, but it's not ramen, you know, yeah. it's all Italian. And, you know, so like all the recipes are going in the book, you know, and we're even talking about like bottling up some like his sauce, you know, his marinara. Wow. That'd be great. Or, that'd be great for a pre-order with the book. Oh my God. Like, well, that's what we were trying to figure out. Like, do you do like, the first 200 pre-orders you get a jar of sauce or like you have to go to the book signing to get the sauce or you know we're talking about it but i actually have even gone as far as to figure out like who can bottle it up and make labels and like we, we, we're just we just want to go like nuts you know because he's such a unique human being and such a unique character and like you can do all kinds of special shit with him that you just can't do with other people yeah it's a it's amazing like uh you know, you see his apartment and uh, you're talking about his recipes. I went there once and he made a soup. Yeah. It was he incredible. Made, what do you make? Like, pasta fajol? Yeah. Yeah. One, two, okay, three, so, real quick, nice and so easy. The, so the, the recipe's in the book. See, you know? oh, and, it's, and, and so not only is it in the book, but I filmed him making it and giving you how to make it. Hmm. So that'll be a, like a pre book promo thing where you can watch him making his pasta fajoul and he's, you know, fedora, cigar, the whole fucking thing, you know, like in his uh, kitchen slash living room slash, you know, office and, you know, basically just making it for you. Amazing. He's such a, yeah, it's such a unique guy. Like at this age, he's touring. 
I mean, I, I remember the last uh, second to last time I was on tour with Europe, the one show started and it was with Agnostic Front. Mm -hmm. And after the show, we stood in the parking lot talking with uh, like three or four guys and Stigma until probably 4.35 in the morning. Oh, I'm and not I'm, surprised. I'm like, this guy's in, in his 60s, and he's just like chilling and doing whatever he wants, and he's throwing rocks against the building, and he's like, and but I'm then, like, but then, uh, you know, Craig Silverman will like post the photos of him sleeping in the van. Oh, he <laughs> you know, know, he knows when to sleep. Yeah. He, so, so he sleeps when he can sleep, and he hangs out when, when you know, when everybody's around. Yeah, he he must be in tremendous shape because I mean, it just well, he is like he's really like. He's never been a big guy, but like he's even in better shape now than I think he was ten years ago. Yeah, he actually did a stage dive the last tour we did, uh, oh. <laughs> which was right before the pandemic broke out. We uh -huh. maybe February. He did a stage dive, and I couldn't no, even not. imagine doing that right now. I'd fall, I'd like crack or something. You know, Mike and back. You know, afterward, like for days, I'd be living on icy hot and blue emu. Yeah, for real. <laughs> Amazing. I come but yeah, we're, so that we're going to, yeah. So we're going to have that out like, uh, probably next summer. It looks like it'll be out because everything is so screwed up with the supply chain stuff. And, you know, it's like takes so much longer to get this stuff done and out, you know, than ever before. Cause it's paper shortages and ink shortages and the printers are backed up and like all kinds of stuff. So, you know, we would normally be able to have it out probably for early next year, but I think it's going to be more like the summer. And that'll be a great addition to the other books you got out. A lot of cool stuff. Yeah, I'm looking forward to doing this. I mean, well, I've been doing it, but like, you know, I'm looking forward to this being finished because I just, I feel like a little pressure because I know people love him so much that like, you just want to nail it. But we made a decision to do it differently. So the book is actually called The Most Interesting Man in the World. So we're ripping off like the whole Dos Equis thing. Wow. And, and uh, you know, the idea is basically... Like it should feel like a, a fireside chat with stigma, you know, mm. that that's the idea that like, he's just imparting wisdom to the youth, you know, and like, like just New York stories and, and downtown New York stories and, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Like there's just an incredible bit of knowledge and history that, that he has that really I've just not heard from other people. And so it's just, it's just been great talking to him about all this stuff and watching him reminisce and stuff. Looking forward to that one. That's going to be good. Yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to people getting it. Now, let me get back to this stuff because uh, this yeah. is, this is interesting to me. Like, I don't want to keep you all day, but you know, I I appreciate your time. But ha ha like, when you think about like, all right, so it's kind of you would call the position an A and R position. Is that how yeah, you more or less? I think that's generally what it is. I mean, anybody who's like looking out for bands and bringing them into the label to sign in. So sign when you do that, doing A and R. When you do that, do you stay like with the band, like during their time on the label? Do you always like, are you kind of assigned to the band to? Yeah. So they basically just, you know, working, especially at an independent label, that's your gig. Like it's gotcha. all you, um, you know, you might be working with other departments and stuff, but generally, um, you know, certainly within effect and with Roadrunner, you'd sign the band, you'd work with them while they're making their record. <clears throat> you would help devise like what the marketing plan is going to be and whether it's, you know, in conjunction with marketing people or you just kind of come up with the plan and, you know, ultimately ask them to execute it, you know? So yeah, you're pretty much staying with them. Um, I don't think that really happens anymore. You know, I mean, certainly with like 
real boutique indie labels, people do that because there's almost no staff. It's like very few people involved, but you know, like the whole in effect thing, like we had a few people because we shared the staff with, you know, relativity and combat. So there were actual marketing people. And, you know, we brought in somebody who, especially for us, we needed to work with the bands who were going on tour and making sure of tour marketing and, and those things, because that's, that was our bread and butter. Like our bands didn't really get on the radio. They got on, you know, college radio and they would get on those like handful of like punk and metal specialty shows on the commercial stations, but that was it. You lived and died on the road. So for us, it was vital that every one of our bands that went on the road that we did something, but they were there and had an album out, you know? So for instance, um, they went out with Exodus, right? They did like six or seven shows on the East coast with Exodus when Exodus was huge. And so we had to make sure people knew who they were, you know, and that they had an album out. So how are you, you want, my bad, who, who went out with Exodus? Sick of it all. Oh, sick of it all. Okay. Yeah. So like right after the album came out. So basically, you know, you're playing to like 95% people who don't know who you are. And, you know, you wanted to go into those areas and let people know not only this is the band playing in front of Exodus, but they have an album out that you could buy right now, you know? And so then they went out and did the whole country with DRI, you know? And it was the same thing. Like a few more people knew who they were, but generally speaking, probably seven out of 10 people didn't know who they were, you know? And you had to do that job. So that was a big part of our focus at that time. And, uh, could you do, who do you recall? Like the bands, like some of your, your favorite bands to, to work with that you represented? Well, I mean, the whole in effect thing was so great, you know, because in large part we were signing people and working with people we already knew, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were obviously AF and sick of it all and mad ball and killing time. And, you know, and what's crazy is, as I said earlier that I, I roadied for nuclear assault, <clears throat> I then, got to put out what turned out to be their biggest album you know so in effect put out handle with care and that was nuclear assaults best selling and probably best reviewed you know and critically acclaimed album uh, um so that was a, a proud moment you know and then turning ludicrous into scatterbrain you know and turn, turning this band that was great but had such a hard time because of their name and this that and the other thing and sort of converting them into this just into a, the same band, but with a different name and like all this stuff. And they wound up getting really big. Um, so that was amazing. And then obviously went over to Roadrunner uh, after that and signed Madball for real that time. Like they were a real band and they were going to make albums and tour and, you know, like not just the seven inch that we put out and um, that worked out great. And then Shelter and VOD and Doggy Dog and Black Train Jack. And like, you know, it was amazing because I was, able to just work within this world that I knew really well and that I loved, you know, as far as the music and, you know, with Roadrunner being an international company, I mean, I got to help these bands get international success. And, you know, from your own band, what it's like to go over, especially to Europe. And like, it's just a different planet, you know, like the, the kids over there and the scene over there and like how open and welcoming they are and how hungry they are for the music. And we were bringing bands over there and getting bands over there, like in the really early days, like when MAD was first bringing bands over there, you know, and 
all they would play was like squats and youth centers. You know, they, mm. they weren't playing like the festivals yet. You know, Sick of It All is the, the band that cracked the code, you know, for hardcore bands to play like these big metal festivals and stuff. You know, they were the first one, you know, to play Dynamo and, and, and all of that, like as a pure hardcore band. Yeah. And, you know, then everybody else got to do it and it went amazingly well. Did you so, ever have any kind of like resistance bringing bands like uh, Madball or, or Shelter or, you know, into the into a label like like Roadrunner or no? No, not really, because I was brought there to do something a little different than what okay. they were doing. So like when I got there, you know, Sepultura was the biggest band on the label and Obituary is big and Deicide's big. And, you know, so it was like sort of death metal transitioning just out of that and into just sort of extreme metal so that world by the time i got there so i got to roadrunner in like 92 the, the the fact that like the metal bands and the hardcore bands were all playing shows together and like all liked each other and all that stuff that was like well established already mm. so everybody loved af so a lot of people knew madball you know and and Madball had the two EPs out already and they played and they hung out downtown. So the people who worked there knew them, you know what I mean? Like you'd run into Freddie and Hoy and those guys, you know, at bars and stuff downtown, you know, like you just knew, knew them, you know, even if you didn't know a ton about their band. Um, but I was like a crazy Madball fan, you know, and had worked with them before. And I knew Freddie since he was seven and, you know, all that shit, like since way before fucking Hoy or any of those guys were even in the band, you know? And so, you know, people knew them. They knew who they were. They knew who Youth of Today was. So they knew who Shelter was, you know, VOD. You couldn't ignore VOD at that time. They were so big on Long Island. Yeah. And it was, and it was like feeding into the city already. Like, you know, they were drawing 1,500 fucking kids on Long Island with no owl about, you know? Remember that place, the PWAC? The PWAC. So the I was there that, for them was, were nuts. Well, I went to that one really big one and Madball opened that show actually. Mm. And so I just played right before them. So my understanding is that there were 1700 kids there and cause it was, I'd never seen, I'd been to an, a show or two there before, but I'd never seen anything like this, you know, where they, they, there was a line of kids who just didn't get in, you know? Yeah. And the place was wall to wall and they knew every fucking word from their demos to their seven inch everything you know and it was just a new breed like they just changed everything like the way they incorporated metal into their thing and tim as a front man and they were tuning down and like it was just crazy like they were a phenomenon you know and all they all wound up you know doing really well but like doggy dog was the huge surprise you know um they were the one where i loved the band and I signed them off of a demo, but then they put out their album and they just, it took on a life of its own overseas. Like it just became something none of us could have seen, you know, where they just became massive, like eclipsing every band they toured with, just huge. And just, it changed my life. You know, it really changed my life. Um, and that Dynamo 1995, which was basically just a Roadrunner festival, where like doggy dog just took over the whole shit. Like that was just mind blowing, you know, like, like hair, you know, sticking up on the back of my neck shit, you know, wow. you know, I, I talked to, uh, I had, uh, 
Dan, right? Dan on the, uh, yeah, the last yep. episode. And I said to him, I don't know how he took it, but it was meant to be like as a compliment, but they, they were like the turnstile of their time. I think is yeah, that, think, is that accurate think, or no? Well, I just think, I don't know if there was a turnstile their time only because I really do think turnstile started out as a hardcore band, you know? And I don't think doggy dog did, was yeah. ever That's a, a hardcore point. band, but they played with hardcore bands, you know? Mm, yeah. So like, you know, there's at one point, for instance, early, like in L.A., right? Chili Peppers, Fishbone, Jane's Addiction. They all played punk and hardcore shows because where else do you play? Yeah. Like who else can accept this like super hard edge, but left field ish kind of thing. So in New York, you had a few of those bands. I mean, 24 seven spies were certainly one before, you know, like a doggy dog. Like, you know, again, one of my favorite bands, 24 seven spies didn't really fit in you know mm-hmm. but they fit in at matinees you know they played matinees because it worked and you know so it was the kind of thing where you know doggy dog was different they had like this hip-hop edge to them and whatever but you know they just they fit in at the shows but they never called themselves a hardcore band they never you know that wasn't ever their thing so but I, it's so funny because so many people bring up doggy dog when they hear turnstile like the newest turnstile, you yeah. know, uh, the last two albums, let's say. Mm-hmm. And it, I find that so interesting, you know, because when Doggy Dog came out, all anybody talked about was that they sounded like Leeway. Oh, okay. Like that was, the, the I don't think comparison. so at all musically, but maybe the tone of the vocals a little well, bit. Vocals and the guitar tone, especially of the EP, right? Yeah. So if you yeah, go and listen to tone. the Warren EP, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Dan was using the same, you know, amp settings and fucking, you know, boxes and pedals, you know, as AJ, you know what I mean? It's like, it just was the sound of the time, you know? And so there were people kind of like, you know, oh, they remind me of Leeway, you know, there there was that going on. Yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, Jane's Addiction that that I always hear, I I hear Jane's Addiction and Turnstile a little bit. I agree. I think that that's, it has to be an influence on them. Right. You know, the, the vocal style and, you know, some of the, some of the the musical textures that they go with you know um but you know it's just so funny that you know, like turnstiles like the the premier hardcore band in the world right now you know yeah yeah it's like they're doing they're, they're doing so good i, I mean love, i've seen know, it like, throughout so, the years you know i saw the rise too. of like biohazard i remember how big dog eat dog was and you know but it's uh i remember h2o hitting like a, a late night show and playing and you know even vod i thought vod would be up there that's let's talk about that a little bit you brought vod yeah. in and like with the first where madball went from its demo or it's like uh it's seven inches and stuff to that yeah the, the first, first full down, length yep. it's like whoa okay like this just matured into something that's a beast yeah vod they kind of like departed from the seven inches and the demos and they had like a new vibe did you know that was coming were you surprised by by their uh yeah, I, don't know, I don't know. I don't know if I was surprised by the sounds because you, you'd seen at their shows, they were playing some of these songs. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not something that like just jumped out of nowhere, but I don't think I realized how into metal those guys were, you know, not, not so much Tim, but like the guitar players, you know, yeah. and, and, and that basically they love, like they loved corn you know, at the time, even, you know, like when they got to play Sundance, like in Long Island with corn, they were like fucking pigs and shit. You know what I mean? Mm. Like they loved all that stuff because they loved the, like 
tuned down guitar thing and you know they loved that sound so they were coming from so many different places musically and basically they you know they went in and just tried to make the album that that they felt right so if you listen to the song element which is probably my favorite song on the first album mm-hmm. they wrote that in the studio so that was like the last song they wrote for the album so if you want to know where their heads were at at that time that's the song to listen to gotcha. and to me that's like what their sound started to become you know that it was super heavy super aggressive like him screaming and singing um you know like all of that but you know i've done a couple of interviews and and I've talked to those guys about it countless times about how I think when they went into the studio for that album, they just weren't all that sure of themselves. Like I wanted them to record their album where they recorded the demos for us Mm -hmm. um, because it just sounded amazing and we didn't need to do anything fancy. And they wound up going up, you know, to Rhode Island where Madball had recorded and everything. And I just think they were still trying to find themselves, you know, um, they never had been in a big studio before they had new gear and they hadn't really used it yet, you know? So it was just not an easy process, you know? Um, the album that I helped make with them is definitely not my favorite VOD album, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, like when, you know, I remember watching them and, you know, we were big fans. My old band used to play with them a lot and we were so excited and uh, one one goofy thing that we were bummed out about when the album came out was we couldn't hear his breathing. Remember yeah, the demos right. and stuff? Like we yep. wanted that. We're like, ah, why would they not do that? But I guess that's you know. Well, what's funny is that the, for a producer, the, that's a mistake. I guess you know you know maybe, but but if you want it, you could keep it. But the thing was, again, I think it was so chaotic them trying to make that album that like it probably became like so secondary, like it got pushed so far down the priority list that like you couldn't even get to thinking about that. You know, it was like, we just have to nail Tim's vocals somehow, you know, because they tried to make him like stand stationary at a big mic, you know, and just, he was so uncomfortable, you know, because that's, he's used to stalking the place and fucking screaming, you know? And so eventually he re-recorded the vocals with a handheld, but, um, you know, like those were the kind of things that they had to overcome, you know, like how to get great performances out of themselves and get them on tape. Yeah. Such a cool band. It was, it was such a cool band at the time. Oh, and live, they were just devastating, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They had it going on. It's just, I remember like a couple times when bands would, would get to that next level, sometimes they would abandon like what kind of got them there. I always thought, and I was always like, ah, let's, wonder why they would do it. Sometimes it would work out and then they'd go to the next and then the next, but sometimes I think, I think they got bored. You know, I think that they, they were one of those bands that had a, in their heads had to constantly be like progressing yeah, and, and trying new things. Otherwise, like what's the point? And I really appreciated that about them. You know, yeah. even when they went like songs, like really heavy on the singing and low on the screaming or whatever. Um, I appreciated that because I just was like, you know, I don't, on some levels, I like bands that make the same record over and over again. And then there's bands where I'm like, please don't do that. You know, like just yeah. do, do, do whatever you want next, you know? So that's why I like bands like Voivod and I like things like that where you never are going to hear the same record twice ever. You know, yeah. I like um, that when it's pulled, when, when a band pulls it off and you yes. know what I mean? But well, some, you gotta, you gotta pull it off. Yeah. Right? You gotta assuming, pull it off. Assuming but, they pull it off. 
So let's go to that now that first mad ball, mad ball going from those seven inches to set it off. Were yeah. you surprised with the outcome of that album or did you expect it? Did I, you? I don't know if I was surprised. I think I knew the tunes already, so I knew what they were going to record, at least some of it. Um, and because, again, they played a few of them live already, so I'd seen it. Um, but I guess I'm surprised that they were comfortable with like the big studio production vibe, like the huge drum room, you know, thing. Um, I, I don't know if I saw that coming. Mm-hmm. but when i heard it i fucking loved it you know and there's some bands who do stuff like that where i'm like oh no you know yeah. um especially then you know you wanted you wanted your hardcore bands to be hardcore bands and your metal bands to be metal bands you know and it was just like they went there and it just sort of worked you know like when when the drums came in you know on the song set it off i was just like it just fucking feels right you know yeah, yeah. and and so that's all I care about. Like, if, if, if you know, I've heard bands that, you know, are used to playing like small clubs and they come out with this big production and you're like, this just sounds awkward, you know, like it just doesn't sound like them anymore. But the attitude and the intensity was still so much there that it didn't fucking matter that the drums sound like they were recorded at the Philly Spectrum, you know, like yeah. it was it was fine and it worked. And Freddie sounded angry as fuck and the guitar sounded great. and You could hear Hoya and it just, it was great. And I loved it. And it's funny though, cause when they went in to make demonstrating my style, we consciously said, let's tone down the drum room sound a little bit, you know, mm, really? like we definitely went in there saying just not as big, you know, like, let's just make it a little bit more like what it sounds like there with them playing. Like if you were, you know, in a rehearsal room and they were just ripping, mm-hmm. like let's, let's try to get closer to that, you know, so they can be polished sounding, you know, so the, the, the snare tone and all that stuff can be, you know, it could sound fresh and crisp, but don't, don't overdo the room sound, you know? Gotcha. Gotcha. And I remember that was one of the notes we really gave to the engineer. We're like, please don't OD on fucking reverb, you know? That was another great release great release and it's every bit as good as the first one if not yeah. as good you know yeah. yeah they had it's for for bands to have more than one great full-length album it's just a rare thing you know and more you know it gets more rare every year that passes but madball's got some killer full-length albums beginning oh my end. god the, the, what's crazy is that their two most recent are incredible you know yeah, like stuff. not good incredible and like you know, it's funny because like, if you look at look my way and hold it down and like, and all that, it's like, those are like hit or miss albums for a lot of people. And it's funny because they grew on everybody, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so when they both first came out, like some of their fans were just kind of like, yeah, you know, whatever. I like it. You know, those guys talk about it all the time. And then, you know, like they become like people's favorite albums later, you know? And, but like, you know, from hardcore lives on, they've made great new albums like they really have. And, uh, and I'm just really proud of them. And it just shows how important it is to them. And I know like Hoy is like a metal kid at heart. Like he's like cares about the production and cares about the sequencing of songs and cares about the tones and like everything matters, you know? And that's how like metal bands used to be like where, we have to top the production of our favorite album and we have to do this and we have to do that. And yeah, I you know, like that Ho- attitude. Hoya thinks that way. And, 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 you know, that's how Matt Henderson always thought, you know, and, and, you know, there's a reason that those guys keep producing such strong stuff. 
Do you have a favorite? Uh, a favorite Madball album? Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, my favorite really is demonstrating my style. Um, if I had to pick one, but you know, set it off to close second. But then again, I love the last three albums. You know? Yeah. yeah I really good stuff. I, but, but I like songs on everything. I like songs on Infiltrate the System. I like songs on Legacy. You know, it's like. It, there's good shit all over the place and totally they just, the they just took great. a different approach to each one you know and i, I my thing was uh hold it down i just love that, that. yeah and it's funny because again that you know that and look my way like when they first came out like some of the you know i don't know if it was just the time or the there was a changing of the guard with hardcore so those albums got caught up in that but there was like the two albums that some of their fans were like yeah i kind of like it you know but hardcore then, like, is a rough that, scene to make people happy because it's always your earliest stuff and they, they no because it, there's a keep it real factor and everybody has to yeah. be the like yo i was there block up you know back in the day and blah, blah. it's like shut up like nobody right. fucking cares you know yeah. it's like did they make a great album or not like it's like like wisdom and chains is supposed to be held to like your first fucking record forever it's it, you know it's like no <laughs> it's like that's ridiculous yeah but that's all that's kind of the thing though you know play this oh you didn't play anything off that off the real old shit you know like right and it's like but then but because, then because that's just, again, it's a keeping it real bullshit thing. You yeah. know what I mean? It's not like, do you even really love that album more than our other albums? Or you just want to, you need people to know you know that album. You know? Yeah, that is a thing. Me, I love like a band like Terror, like even mm -hmm. like that's that's a band like, oh, okay. Like their newest stuff is almost, almost always my favorite stuff by them. They always end up right. popping it. Like that's a cool thing. But, uh, but, but, you know, kids have this fucking, it, there's a lifestyle thing to hardcore like there's a cred thing and a yeah and a and a lifestyle thing and sometimes kids get really caught up in that shit like way too often and and you know you wind up with this you know back in the day you know real hardcore it's like what does that mean i know yeah what does that mean <laughs> i mean hardcore is so broad but let me take you to this let me let me say Okay, on roadrunner did you ever work with this is one of my favorite bands of all time any music uh style ever typo negative yeah so it's interesting because when i when i first got to roadrunner they hired me to, to sign bands and do a and r mm -hmm. and then shortly after i got there they talked to me about being a product manager and doing marketing and i was like cool i was like because i had to do that within effect i had to kind of do like a lot of hat wearing you know and and do different things so I was like, that's cool. So they started assigning some bands to me. So they assigned me Biohazard. So for Urban Discipline. So like wow. I wrote them. So I wrote the marketing plan, for instance, for Urban Discipline. Um, for Great Step marketing, Matura, by the way. That was everywhere. I mean, that well, was. Well, that, that was the plan. I mean, and a lot of that was them, you know, because they, they were such hustlers. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we helped make the record visible and they were on tour. And, you know, you, did, you couldn't ignore it. People knew that album was out. You know, yep. and th that's really what the goal is. So we did that. Then I worked on Sepultura. I worked on the second half of the Arise campaign and then um, worked with, if you remember, Epic Records put out the one record they put out, Chaos AD. Yeah. And, and so I like worked with Epic, um, you know, to, to help get that done. And then um, so I and then I get typo negative. Now, so of course I knew Typo Negative. I'd known Carnivore. You know, I knew Pete a little bit. I didn't really know the other guys that well. So right when I get there, they're handing in Bloody Kisses, right? They just made Bloody Kisses. 
And so it was obviously so fucking different than what they'd been doing, you know, with like the fucking origin of the feces and like all that shit before. So literally shit before. (laughs) Um, So, you know, so they do the album and everybody at the label has just got a fucking rock hard dick over it, you know? And so I'm like, I hear the album. I think it's fucking great, but it's really different, you know? Mm. And they, you know, the whole sort of goth rock, like keyboard, like thing. But it was brilliant. And so we're going to, you know, I have to come up with a marketing plan. So now I'm like, the first order of business is how do I get people to stop thinking about typo negative as the band with this giant asshole on the cover, you know, like (laughs) so that they'll take them seriously, you know, because they sort of made a serious album. So that's on my mind. And then they came in with what they wanted to have as the album cover. And if you remember in the packaging, there were those green lips. It was like either on the CD itself or under the CD tray or something like there was just these green, like a green kiss lips mark, you yeah. know? So they came in, they wanted that to be the cover. And so now I'm new there and I'm taking this responsibility of, of like, people love this record. Like we got to have like, an image that at least is matches the greatness of the album right so i'm like so my first thing is like yeah i don't think this is a good cover you know but so i'm telling that to pete Steele and like all that and of course that was really well received they were really happy um so basically they're like they're like we disagree and blah 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 blah, blah. they're like well, what do you have in mind i was like i don't know but it's not this you know um this is just too simple and fucking basic for this album you made. Like, and I just started saying like all the bands that you like, you know, like, you know, would, would joy division do this as a cover Would fucking, you know, would would sisters of mercy do this as a cover. Like none of the bands would do this, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's when I got it to them a little bit, you know, like all these bands you're trying to, you're fucking with now, like style wise, this, this would never be their cover, you know? So someone came up with the idea of the photo shoot with the girls. And so I think one of them, maybe Pete knew the photographer and one of the girls is the photographer's like wife or girlfriend. And then they got like one of her friends and they did that photo shoot and they brought in those photos and were like, this is it, you know? So that was like the first order of business. Like, and just like imaging and packaging them. And like, we weren't even sophisticated enough to know that that's kind of what we were doing. We just knew the cover wasn't the right cover, you know? And then we're like, okay, so we want the music to get listened to without any preconceived notions. So, you know, normally people would make like advanced cassettes of albums back then, and you'd send them out to, to press and to radio and give people a little tease about like what's coming. So I'm like, I don't want to write typo negative on the cassette because then people are going to think of the asshole. So mm. basically, let's send it out anonymously. But we'll give like a little hint. So what I did in my fucking genius, <laughs> genius thought process at the time is we took fucking Coney Island hot dogs, put them in a bun and put them in the mailer with the cassette. So there was our hint, Coney Island. Wow. And so we put this disgusting fucking hot dog in a bun in a mailer with a cassette. And we sent it out to like, you know, maybe like 30, 40 radio people and 50 journalists, you know? And so we send this thing out and 
it shows up and all, they're all calling their reps at Roadrunner like, what the fuck? this is disgusting they all thought it was funny you know yeah, but yeah. like they're like this is this is gross they're like hey is that typo negative <laughs> yeah you know? and i was like they all fucking knew it was typo negative <laughs> that's brilliant though just the way to get people talking <laughs> but people were talking right yeah. so like did you get a hot dog you know like all this shit so now people are talking so then by that time you know we're ready to like take a first song you know to radio and we made the video with paris and drew and you know, the black number one video and like it's life of agony up in the trees dressed as the droogs, you know, and like it, it was a, a family affair. You know, we like snuck into fucking Central Park in the middle of the night. We're filming up in a tree at two in the morning, oh, you know, like awesome. no permit, nothing, you know. And so we did the video and fucking, you know, like it just, you know, when shit actually works, you know, when yep. the things that never happen start to happen that started to happen for them, you know, where like MTV was like, we love the video and radio was like, we love this song. And, you know, then they get consecutive tours with fucking Pantera, Nine Inch Nails and Motley Crue. Amazing. <laughs> Arena tours, you know? Damn. And so, and so it's just all working like total fucking stepping in shit, getting lucky ducks aligning moons aligning the whole thing you know and it was a great album and it yeah. just worked you know that album was and great. so and it was the first gold album in america ever for roadrunner really i was just yeah. going to ask you next what would be the biggest number mover uh well so so out of everything we've been talking about typo went gold in america they did really well everywhere else too so they did well in europe and you know probably sold another couple hundred um so that was a big deal. Um, obviously, that was until, you know, so they kind of eclipsed uh, Sepultura, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of sales. And then Slipknot eclipsed Typo, you know. Yeah. And and then, you know, Nickelback, which, you know, I wasn't there for any of that. But like, you know, the Nickelback comes out and sells like, what do they sell? Like 12 million in America or some shit. Yeah, Nickelback. What an anomaly. Everybody claims to not like them, but. I know. But the like, numbers uh, say something else. No, the numbers say something else. But, you know, very like average rock fan you know yeah like, yeah very you know, safe safe music you know for beyond him. safe like yeah. it's a super safe thing and uh it's so funny like i don't know if you're a baseball guy but like the you know the anaheim angels were on this awful fucking losing streak mm -hmm. and so to lighten things up with the team like to try to get them to stop like being so stressed and pressing they every batter came up to nickelback as their walk-up music oh my gosh that's like just crazy. To, just to like spoof the whole thing yeah. like we're not taking ourselves seriously yet they lost anyway but at the same time <laughs> it was like an announcement like across baseball that like we're all coming up to nickelback songs that's fine. i was gonna say poor nickelback <laughs> but then again it's yeah are probably loaded yeah so good. they got yeah i think they're okay yeah, but yeah. um that all that happened just this week you know that was pretty funny that's funny. but yeah so like you know nickelback was the you know and what's crazy is that when the owner of Roadrunner was selling Roadrunner. He was selling them with Slipknot as his biggest band. And then as it was happening, Nickelback starts blowing up. Wow. So it like changed the whole complexion of like the sale of the company and like all the shit, you know? So are they still a, a like an independent? No, there is basically no Roadrunner records. So a few of the bands are still alive. Um, I forget like 
which major label they're aligned with at this point. Like, I don't know if it's Sony, like they all bought each other at one point, you know what I mean? So I like yeah. lost track huh. like, of who owns what, but like there is no actual Roadrunner. There's no uh, Roadrunner. Wow. What a crazy thought. Roadrunner is, was right? always my go-to. If, if the Roadrunner logo was on an album, I would get you it. bought it, right? I bought it. And it was, you yeah. know, the same went for a victory for a while. And, but I was disappointed one time. It's no diss. It was just not my style. When I bought the black train Jack, I, oh, okay. I didn't understand. Like this was too different that I, I was, I was expecting like, you know, a hard to kind of thing. And I was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And yeah, I, I actually mean, that bought was... that just because of the Roadrunner label. Yeah. I mean, it was the kind of thing where I, I love the band. I love the guys. Like, I mean, I knew Ernie obviously from token entry um, and all that stuff, but like, you know, I got a demo of theirs and it was interesting because it really was at a time like a little bit before the melodic hardcore thing had a big resurgence. Mm -hmm. And, and, but like that was sort of when the epitaph shit started to really pop off. So it was like, and, and I didn't sign them for that reason. It just, that stuff had come around and it was sort of out there again. So that's when like, the offspring started to happen and rants had started to get bigger and like even no doubt you know who was basically just a little ska punk band from orange county you know like before they got really big and so you know there were bands on the east coast that were starting to mm -hmm. to like you know revamp that sound and like that's something that ernie had always done i mean they almost sounded like a west coast band sometimes token entry you know yeah. um because they had like a skate thing about them and you know and and even timmy chunks he was a skater you know and 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 ernie skated and so they had that sound they had that like west coast skate thing like in their new york hardcore you know and then you had like rob vitale uh who i miss dearly um you know with this voice you know that he had been like a fucking opera singer you know mm -hmm. but but he was a token entry roadie you know oh, and, shit. and and so he loved you know token entry and so he and and ernie wound up getting together and forming this band you know and 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 basically you know the first album is definitely much more punk rock i would say than the second one but uh but you know i love i loved love that that band and when they broke up they were probably an album away from getting really big damn yeah a lot of my friends love that but just with me it was they like, were I was... huge in pennsylvania yeah huge like i don't know what it was about philly with them but like philly for sure but even the other towns like that you would tour you know in pennsylvania that had regular you know show spots so everywhere from trenton you know into pennsylvania proper yep. um you know oh yeah i saw them a ton out here in scranton and that area redding and yeah. everywhere and like the unisound and like uh all of that shit and like you know i would go see them in philly and just be like jesus christ they're fucking huge here pa always loves melodic bands like it, they, even they love h2o that early on was like probably yes. they were probably That's bigger right. here than anywhere no 100 percent. like that sound was was massive there and and they just did well you know and they, they fit right into it and i saw them everywhere from like jc dobbs to you mm. know the bigger venues in, in in pennsylvania and they just were always popular and so <clears throat> you know but again we were there trying to do something different and and i just hate that they broke up like where i really feel like they were an inch away from getting massive did they did they feel that as a band did they know that was uh coming their way did they you know what er i love ernie but ernie's a weird guy and ernie was a teacher and I think 
he just doubted, you know, the ability of the band to be his living, you know? Okay. And so at one point he was just like, you know, I'm not seeing enough of a sign that this is really going to work out. So I'm going back to teaching, you know, and he left the other guys like in the dust kind of, um, because they really wanted to continue and it couldn't be, you know, and that sucks. Um, you know, cause those guys really wanted to, to have a go at the band yeah, and, uh, and just, they just didn't get the chance, which sucks. That does suck. It's hard being in a band. I mean, just, of uh, course. And, and especially the dynamics, if you, have doubts. you know, yeah, especially if you have doubts, like, you know, if you don't get along with a band member, like that happens, you know, like you're in a van or just close quarters for a long time and you just get sick of each other and that happens, you know, but like when you're doubting if it's worth it, yeah. you know, then, then you got to be done. Yeah. You just got to be done. You know, um, I've seen it too many times. I've seen people stay in the band when they shouldn't have and like ruin the rest of the band, you know? So it's like, it just didn't suck for you. Now you're blowing it for everybody else. Yeah. 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 If this, the, the, the dynamics, five, four or five people. And, and then, like you said, though, if, uh, even some of the best bands, like just for some reason, sometimes you just don't kick in, you know? Yeah, well, that happens. And then yeah, you don't know what's going on with people. Like, I remember, you know, you read all this stuff about Nirvana, like as they were, you know, went from like sub pop band to like being a huge band. And, you know, Kurt hated every second of it, like whether it was justified or this, that it's not for us to say, you know, Yeah. but he hated it. He fucking hated it. He hated not being able to walk around. He hated not to be able to go to his own show and like hang out in the crowd and smoke a cigarette and drink. You know what I mean? He was just like, it, it sucks. Like everything has changed, you know? And as they got bigger and bigger and bigger, it got worse and worse for him, you know? And so, you know, there's people that are like, well, you know, like fucking suck it up. You're in a huge band. Wasn't that your dream? It's like, I don't know if that was his dream. Like, I don't know if he was like a little kid with a tennis racket in front of the window, in front of the mirror, you know, like, trying to pretend he was a rock star i don't know if that was what he wanted or who he was you know yeah, totally I, th- I think it was dave Grohl, but i don't necessarily know it was kurt cobain what a voice on cobain man oh my god it's so you know and i wasn't like the hugest nirvana fan but i really appreciated them you know i appreciate and it more now than when they were i active. feel the same way like i feel like i understand it now more than i did when like Nevermind was coming out. Like yeah. I, I didn't, I knew bleach existed, but I didn't have it. You know, I didn't have time for that stuff back then. You know? It's yeah. It was like, like I, I was, I was such a snob, you know? Yeah. Me, yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, it was like, there was that. And then like when COC went like rock, you know, and, yeah. and, and all that, like I hated it at first and now I love it. <laughs> yeah. I was like Nirvana. Who are these? Cut your hair. Who is this guy? Right. Right. Like, what is this? They call yeah. themselves punk rock. But I revisited yeah. uh, that MTV unplugged set. It's and so good. He sings that Lead Belly song and his uh, vocals, his vocals are incredible, tremendous. Oh man, the, the tone of his voice was fucking special. Yeah. So good. And back you then, know? I did I if a song came on the radio back then cuz I wouldn't even listen to the radio, you know. Right, but I would right. be like, okay, this is something at least kind of cool on the radio, but I'm not buying their stuff or trying to see them live or anything like that. Right, you, like I don't care that much, you know. Yeah, yeah, but like, But I guess I'd rather hear this over a lot of other stuff. Yeah. And then, yeah, totally. It was like the decent thing to pick from the mainstream, you know? Right. It was like this or Edie Brickell and the new Bohemians. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like another, like 1990, 1991 kind of thing. 
But I mean, imagine, uh, geez, like, I wonder if like the experience for the guys in the label dealing with them knew how, how big those guys would get, you know? Well, I mean, listen, they signed them for a reason, you mm-hmm. know, I still don't, I don't believe when you sign Nirvana, you're like, can you imagine if we could get a platinum record, like even gold, you know what yeah. I mean? Look. Like, you're like, can you imagine if we could sell a half million copies of this thing? You can't, no one ever under any circumstance, they are a fucking liar if they tell you otherwise. Yeah, because look what was selling platinum at the time. It was nothing like that. Not even close. Yeah. And like, it was like, you know, hair metal was still a thing, you know, and, and still pretty big, you know, like poison and, you know, like warrant and like the big commercial versions, you yeah. know, those bands like Motley Crue was not even big anymore, you know? Um, and, and so you don't know that that's going to happen. You don't know that they're going to be a fucking phenomenon, you know, and sell tell 10 million records Insane. and be the biggest band in the world and influence the entire sound of music for the next five years, you know, like where every band is going to try to be like that, you know, and then, you know, it sucks for some of the other Seattle bands because they get lumped in with them. And it's like, we've been doing it longer than they have. Yeah. You know, it's not always Soundgarden the case, and, you know, Soundgarden and all that shit. And it was like, Soundgarden, I actually really liked. <laughs> you know? Yeah, another dope band. There's there's so much stuff that's uh that I, I want to ask you about because you know you've been you did so much cool shit. You still got shit going on. We could always do part two, man. Yeah, especially when uh this book comes out. Like I want to. Oh um, yeah, like I, that's you got to get stigma on too because it's just we're just having fun making it too, which is great. Um, we're just going at our own pace, you know, and like stuff comes up and obviously we've covered tons of topics but like every time i see him something new comes up you know or he'll he'll write me some notes or you know like we have to make sure we talk about this because we didn't get to this yet you know yeah yeah and then you know half of it'll be stuff we talked about already but um but then he'll he'll come up with a couple of topics and like oh shit we do have to talk about that you know he was down for the podcast but he says i have to go to uh to his place he, he doesn't have the technology for this he said he doesn't well he could do it as long as he knows it just has to be on his phone yeah, I think, I mean, uh, so like Gallo said he would go there and help him out with it, but it's like, I'll just, I'm in New York all the time. I work there, so I'll just try to bring Gallo Yeah, just go, to, go up to his house. Yeah, yeah, because uh, he really he really is, like, technically, you know. Yeah, uh, of course. Th- of course. He, he is, he is uh, at a deficit there. But, you know, I remember <laughs> we got the book agreement, right, like, the, from the publisher. And so, you know, everybody does, like, a DocuSign thing. And so he had no fucking idea how to DocuSign his his book publishing deal and so like so gallo had to basically do it for him wow gallo yeah, my God, he, he's just like you know he's just like i don't i don't know what to do like, i don't know how to do it <laughs> so That's... so we got we got mike on the phone and he uh we sent him everything and he basically just signed it for us <laughs> that's awesome yeah yeah definitely when, when this book is coming out let's let's get up to up again but for now i want to ask you one more question yeah yeah just, you know, all your experience, your livelihood, your career, your different jobs, different labels, working with bands, um, is what we would call rock and roll, just guitar driven, heavy music. Is it on the decline? Do you think? Because when you look at numbers of what is big right now, it's incredible, it's, but it's like singles and they get, you know, three, <laughs> yeah. 300 million, you know, streams and this and that, like. Is this sort of music on the way out, you feel? I don't think it's on the way out at all. I think 
music has proven over decades and decades and decades to be cyclical Mm -hmm. and stuff comes back in and it disappears again and whatever. I mean, even in like some of the pop songs, like the quote unquote teen pop songs that are on the radio, you're starting to hear like guitars in them and stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. um, again, you know, where that wasn't the case for a long time. It was all fucking, you know, trap beats and vocals and, like all that shit. And like, you know, look, I got a 13 and a half year old daughter. Like I know what she listens to. And so she doesn't look at music the way we did when we were younger, like where that was the primary release and source of entertainment. Right Mm -hmm. now it's internet and it's apps and it's, you know, it's all that shit. It's all digital Mm -hmm. and it's less personal, you know, it's very impersonal. And so I think, you know, kids are not growing up young, like what I described and wanting to go see live music really early in my life and all that. I think that stuff is just not there right now. You know, um, like you said, kids tend to like singles and songs that they don't necessarily latch on to albums or artists. Mm-hmm. And if you notice, there are artists that don't even make albums anymore. They just keep dropping singles or they'll do an EP after they got three, four songs or whatever. So it's just a different culture right now with that stuff. But that doesn't mean it's not going to come back. And listen, you know, I don't know how many records they're really selling, but there's obviously been room for Turnstile to like get a whole lot bigger and with another album get even bigger still. Um so it's not absent, you know, but I don't think it's on the decline as far as being permanent. I think it's just at a low at the moment and that's fine. And that's happened before, you know, Um, where, you know, disco came up in the the mid seventies and then, you know, electronic dance music. And, you know, that's something that competes for the attention, you know, and and music and, you know, and, and kids like a lot of different stuff these days where, you know, we used to tend to gravitate. Like I remember when I was a little kid, like kids would be like, you like rock or disco? Oh, wow. You know, and it was like, I like rock, which basically just meant you were white. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, you know, God forbid you're a white kid and said you like disco. Then you were like, then you got called <laughs> like racial epithets, you know, but like shit like that. So it was like real, like dividing lines. It was almost like, you know, that you took pride in like that you liked rock, mm. um, you know, and now it's like, it's just different. Like kids like music. I don't even know if they know genres anymore or care, which might be a good thing, you know, um, they just know what they like and that's the end of it. Um, so I do think, you know, that this, this will come back around again for sure in a bigger way than it is now. Yeah. Interesting. Cause I, I go to live shows all the time and it's like the attendance is there, but when I, I, I got this weird thing when I love looking at Spotify numbers yes. and I'm just seeing like, I'm like, huh? He's like, nobody really listens to this shit like on Spotify though. Like, it's just, just like, yep. it's just a different. Uh, it, are these numbers an illusion? Like these people I never heard of. Well, some of it is. Yeah. Some of it is an illusion. I mean, like, just watch any documentary about fucking bots and buying plays, and you know what I mean, and all that stuff. Like, it's that stuff's real, you know, yeah. because we're living in this data-driven world right now. So, trying to get a record deal. They don't give a fuck if you're amazing. They give a fuck if you have numbers, 
you know? Yeah. That stuff is kind of important. Even though I, the, the friends I have that own clubs or book shows, they're kind of like, you know, some of these, uh, acts we're bringing in here, they got, you know, 17 million streams in a month, Doesn't matter. but nobody comes, nobody shows up. And then the guy with 8,000, so he's, you know, he gets three, 400 kids. It's like, what's, what's going on? Well, that's the thing. I'm, you know, like, and, and with the pop stuff, especially it's so fucking one song at a time driven that like, you know, what's her face? Carly Rae Jepsen, right. With like, call me maybe. Right. Mm massive 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 like the biggest song in the world for months right you know and i didn't i don't, I don't even know that name carly ray so, right and, so you know most people don't know pop stars names for a while they know the name of the song right so you know call me maybe right you know that song like if i played it for you right now i probably would oh yeah i'd recognize you, like I, I heard this five million times you yeah. know like whether i wanted to or not like if i was just in a store buying a fucking soda you know, like I heard the song in there somewhere. And so biggest, 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 one of the most streamed songs in history. Right. Wow. So her album comes out like six, seven months after the single. The first week was like 40,000 albums. What? Oh, my God. I'm talking tens of millions of streams. Right. Yeah. Like what? So it, what is going on there? Nothing. That meant I mean, nothing. It means nothing. It's like people like the song. It doesn't mean they like the artist. It doesn't mean they care about their next album. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's a different time. When I was a kid, uh, I mean, my mother didn't listen to Guns N' Roses, but if she saw a picture of Axl Rose, she knew who it was. Of course. I mean, like now it's kind of like, I never even heard that name before. And it's the biggest streaming. Go go to Spotify when we get off the phone and look at Carly Rae Jepsen. Call me baby. It's Yeah. Tell me I'm dying to know. Like what the numbers are. Carly Ray. It'll probably with a C? L yeah, C A R L either E Y or just L Y. Ray. Oh shit. I my J J E P. Carly Ray Jepson. Yeah, here we go. Yeah. Okay. I just see her monthly her monthly listens and it's over thirteen million. All right, but what's call me maybe? I, I can't see that specific song. Find that song. <laughs> this is crazy. Like I never even seen this broad before. Pretty though. I and like you'll, her. And you'll never see her again. She looks like out of nineteen seventies vibe. Is that how's the music? Incredible, incredible voice. Like yep. legit incredible voice. Huh. Let me see if I can find Carl. Jepson, that's an odd name. Is yeah. she American or not? Yeah, I just don't know where she's from, but yeah, she's American. Uh I can't find that song. All right. So look it up later. It's, I mean, it's beyond massive. It's just like one of those, you know. All right, I like, see a song called I Really Like You. No, Call Me Maybe. That was the song. Because that has 145 million streams. Yeah, that's not surprising. And that's, that's not even going to be close to the biggest. That's insane, man. Wow. Hold on. Let me see something. Yeah. I, I still got you, right? Yeah, yeah. Hold on a second. Um, Because I'm looking at Spotify now. This is great radio, right? Yeah. Yeah, Call Me Maybe, Carly Rae Jepsen. I'm going to see if it has, like, the number of streams or anything. It's hard to find, right? 
Yeah, I don't know. They're trying to I trick can... us. I know they are. It's ridiculous. Come on, Carly Rakes, pay some tax money. She's like, yo, she's telling the accountant, hide that. I don't want to be paying. Oh, here it is. You're... I got it. I got it. All right, what is it? $840,686,000. Oh, my gosh. Incredible. And 40,000 physical units of the complete album. That's sells. what she sold after the success. I wonder what she was expecting or what anyone was expecting. Not which, that. Which means, which means that album probably never even got halfway to gold. No. No. That's ridiculous. That's really weird. I just don't understand it, but oh, I'm, a, I'm a guitar guy. Pushing a billion streams. Insane. Insane. I mean, there's a little money so, to be made there, right? I mean, streams barely no, pay there's, anything, there's, but if you yeah, got a billion. When you're, when you're, yeah, when you're, when you're streaming that much. But, you know, the, the bottom line is, is that, you know, I wonder what it was like for her to tour, you know? Um, like, because yeah. like you said, you didn't know her name. So if they put on a Carly Rae Jepsen show on sale, you know, call me maybe, but you don't know fucking who Carly Rae Jepsen is. Totally. So, is she, is she able to play arenas when she's that big? Is she yeah. like, you know, unless it's like a big radio show with like 15 different pop acts doing two songs, you know, there's no way, there's no way she could. Meanwhile, if, if Iron Maiden was booked at giant stadium, it would sell out two days in a row and would sell out right? without a song on a radio or streaming and a new album that nobody cares about. I know. Insane. But you that's know, a beautiful thing. It, it's crazy to see the difference from the aging metal to aging hip hop. Young yeah, hip hop different, right? numbers are through the roof. Old hip hop, yeah. they don't give a fuck. Old no, metal, they don't give a fuck at all. Old, yeah, fact, it, all I always the, found the it disrespectful. Rappers, yeah, the new rappers shit on their forefathers. You know, I always found it disrespectful, and I always appreciated that hardcore had a lot of reverence for the old acts. You know what I mean? Well, like, but but if you look on the message boards, it's you know, changing it's, nowadays. It's, it's changing now. You know, like where the, the young kids have no respect and it's like, yeah, listen, I get it. It's a new age. I totally get it. Like, you know, I'm not trying to like be in your scene per se. I'm fucking 54 years old, but like, you know, don't, don't say shit about the bands that like were the first and had a struggle yeah. to like, let you even have this. Yeah. You know? And that's kind Not of a new thing in hardcore. I, I, yeah. A decade ago, you wouldn't really see people just attacking uh, a minor threat or something like that. It just wouldn't do right. it. Now you'll see people just attacking like John Joseph, like all the time. It's just like, come on. Dude. Well, that's, that's a whole other story we yeah. won't get into, yeah. but like, uh, but, but you know, it's like you see people using terms like old heads, you know? Yeah. It's like, stop with the old heads. Like, let's stop that that one thing hardcore isn't is like putting us in little subsections like don't do that you know what i mean yeah. it's like yes you're younger i'm older there's people older than me there's people younger than you who gives a fuck like we don't own this thing you know it's like it's something we're a part of and there's room for everybody and shut the fuck up <laughs> you didn't invent anything <laughs> you totally. know shut the fuck up i like to leave it with that yo definitely yeah, let's, exactly. let's get up and talk again and uh We'll do it around the stigma release, the stigma book. No doubt. Release. That'll be fun. Yo, I appreciate the time, man. Thank you very much. Easy. Thank you very much for having me again. And, uh, and we'll talk more. We'll just fucking keep going. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right, Howie, I'll talk to you soon. All right, brother. Peace. Thanks a lot for listening. We really appreciate it. Post America podcast will always be there for you. Don't forget that. Tune in next time for more fun with the boys. Until then, get the
get your fucking ass out of here before I give you a smack, motherfucker! Who the fuck you think you in? This is post-America! You ain't shit, motherfucker!